Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really like doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. These are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Today, we are sitting with a visiting professor for Israel Bible Center. Dr. Brian Robinson is a professor of religious studies who recently created a course called The Jewish Gospel of Luke. You may recall last week's episode as we tasted a sampling of what is in this new course. If you did not hear that episode, pause this one, go back and listen. It's really good. We briefly covered the transition of the Roman Republic into the empire. This is something that so many people tend to skip over when they're talking about the gospel narratives, and I love that it's in this particular class. We may remember that we ended with Julius Caesar and that he was different in the Roman Republic and that he didn't have lots of wealth, but he had the love of the common people. And then, and then Augustus, he was Julius's adopted son. So his father had been given all these honors and he wanted to make sure that they would not pass over him. He got a lot of power that he wanted and stated that his father was divine and thus he was the son of God. Oh goodness, the drama, the narcissism, the very real and important backdrop to reading terms in the gospels like euangelion, especially when speaking of the good news of being the son of God. So all of this brings us to the Gospel of Luke. How does this background help us understand how Luke is painting a picture of who Jesus is? Think for a moment of all the letters circulating in the Roman Empire that are telling stories of who the Caesar is and what people think about that Caesar. In this context, I want to find out from Dr. Robinson if he thought that when Luke sat down to put quill to parchment and write out this kind of claim about a Jewish man, was that a dangerous enterprise? Lean in and enjoy the conversation. Um, yeah, I, 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 I definitely think so. And, and so for people in the class or for students of these texts, like if, if they've ever heard of like anti-imperial readings of these texts or empire criticism or imperial criticism type stuff, like that's a... That's a common that's a common idea that's used that like saying these things out loud, let alone putting them down in paper where they could be traced back to you, could get you in trouble. And we know in some cases did get people in trouble. It's interesting, especially with Luke, because Luke has oftentimes been used to defend a more obedient picture of the early believers. Obedient in terms of like these were people who were finding a way to situate themselves with like within Rome's discourse within Rome's talking about itself. They weren't trying to challenge Roman authority. They were trying to find their own little corner of the world and not disturb Rome's authority. And there's a long history of those, those, types, of, those types of readings. 
there's all other kinds of ways to look at the text, which you see, like, I think where you, you see that, that the text is actually very much challenging, not just Rome's, not just Rome's story about itself, but all of the little ideologies, all of the little, little sub-stories that are used to support Rome's story about itself. So an example, can I give an example of one? I would love that. Okay. So Brittany Wilson, who is a, just a fantastic Luke Acts scholar and who is also just a fantastic human being, but she did her dissertation. She, her first published book is called Unmanly Men. Unmanly Men? I'm pretty sure it's Unmanly Men. If it's not Unmanly Men, Brittany, I'm, I apologize greatly for getting the title wrong. Just a note here, I looked it up and the book is called Unmanly Men, Refigurations of Masculinity in Luke X. And it won all kinds of awards. I have a feeling she is probably someone I would really love to talk to. Anyway, back to what Dr. Robinson was saying. But what she does is she looks at the way that that male and female characters are played off of against one another in Luke Acts, and especially with how masculinity is presented in Luke Acts. And what she shows is that not only is Luke challenging this one idea that like maybe Augustus is just some guy who's puffing himself up. And maybe there's this other person that we should look to as being like the type of son of God representative who's going to transform the world. But that all these other stories and all these other ways that people look at themselves and for her work, specifically the idea of gender, where if you're going to change stories from Rome's story to Jesus's story, you also have to change these other stories that you tell about yourself and other people at the same time. So it's not just enough to change who you're going to vote for right? You also have to change how you treat people. And that comes at a real cost for certain figures. And one of the things that I do, I do draw on her work in the class because, as I've said, it is amazing. But one of the things that we look at in the course is the sort of the juxtaposition or the, the, the comparison of Jesus's interaction with a couple of different key characters. And so you have the rich ruler, you have Zacchaeus, and you have the blind beggar all in pretty quick succession to one another. And if you look, if you look at those characters individually, and then especially then when you can compare them, you see that to be a part of Jesus's, to respond to Jesus's message, right, it asks these characters, it, it engages these other stories that these characters are living in. So for each of these characters, there's this strong economic component, right? The rich ruler comes to Jesus. Jesus's only ask of him is to be able to give up his, all of his money and, and pass it on to someone else, which seems crazy. It is crazy. It is crazy. It's just nuts because stuff is nice, right? Um, when I talk to my students, and I think I talk about it in the course like this, like the only way that, that I think that that makes sense is if you look at their whole conversation and Jesus is basically asked, like, are you doing the Decalogue? Are you doing the, the, the latter part of the the, the Ten Commandments, even though there's not ten. Who knows how many there are, but there's definitely not ten, right? If, you, if, you're, if you're a person who's doing those commandments, then it's, it's, it's possible that you have been transformed into being the type of person who could do something this crazy. It's like if you've ever seen the, karate, the original Karate Kid movie, it's wax on, wax off, right? If you've been honoring your parents, if you have not been lying, if you have been, if you've been following this, then there is a chance that you have been shaped to be the type of person who could do this crazy thing. 
but you have to have been shaped. Like you have to be a person who can live into that story enough that you can do the hard work. And the rich ruler can't do it, so he goes away sad. Jesus then is walking, he encounters Zacchaeus. And everything about this story is that Zacchaeus is just, he is a lonely person. Like he's the person who late at night, he'd be scrolling through Twitter, just like nobody wants to be around him. He tries to see Jesus, that like, that the people are blocking him out. That's why he has to go run up the tree. And his position as a tax collector for the Romans, like he's, he, if anyone has money in this town, it's Zacchaeus. If anyone has security in this town, it's Zacchaeus. Why does he have these things? Because he is a part of the machine, right? He is a part of this, he is a part of Rome's domination. And Jesus goes to have dinner at his house. And when the conversation comes up about whether or not this guy Zacchaeus belongs, whether or not he's the right type of person, Zacchaeus is like, right here, right now, I am over-fulfilling the, the commands in Deuteronomy about making restitution and about being generous, right? And then, and then Jesus makes the statement that, hey, who, when did the son of Abraham get here? Because Zacchaeus is the right type of person. Why is he the right type of person? Well, it's, it's not because he prayed a prayer. Prayers are wonderful, but that doesn't happen in the story. He's the right type of person because he is willing to change the story that he's using to determine how he thinks about himself and others. The rich ruler couldn't do it. Zacchaeus does it. The rich ruler goes away sad. Zacchaeus is a son of Abraham. And then like the icing on the cake is the blind beggar. Very next thing we read, Jesus is walking. The blind beggar, right? Again, people tell this person to shut up. It's a character that they're trying to keep away. The blind beggar makes himself heard refers to Jesus using a Davidic title. Jesus is like, great, what do you want? And the blind beggar's like, well, I'd like to see. And, you know, we've just had these other stories, so you're like, great, Jesus has asked these incredible hard things of these characters. What is he going to ask of this poor blind beggar? Jesus doesn't ask anything. He just says, great, is there anything else I can do for you today? Like, you, you can see. And you're like, this doesn't make any sense unless you start to realize the way that individual characters and the way that these characters, like the stories that they thought about themselves and other people, when characters are willing to align themselves with Jesus's way of being in the world, of living in the world, of understanding people, when they can make that alignment happen, or if they're just already there, then they're a part of the kingdom of God. And if they can't, then they're still a part of the kingdom of Rome. And the fact that that is such a consistent uh, that, that has such a consistent role in the stories, I think Luke doesn't come right out and say, Augustus is a jerk. He doesn't say, like, you shouldn't pay your taxes. But Luke is chipping away at the stories that hold up the big story that Rome tells about itself until at the very end, you're like, Rome is just another bad, per like, just another, just another jerk with a big stick, Right? They're not the chosen race. They just happen to have the biggest swords right now. And we know how to, we know how to, we know how to defeat that. Luke doesn't even say, we're now going to compare kingdoms. So here are all the things, positive, negative about Rome. And now let's look at the kingdom of heaven, positive and negative about that. Make your own decision. It, this is where we get that art of narrative and paying attention, which is a really good reminder to everyone, go read Luke as a whole. <laughs> Just we like sometimes we're so accustomed to taking the Zacchaeus story without realizing that we're pulling out the middle block in a three block 
section of characters of which we learn so much more when we put them all together. I mean, and it's hard because like the Zacchaeus song is so catchy. It's hard to work in Rich Ruler and Blind Beggar into that, but I'm sure, you know, that's work to be done. But when you read these stories together, you just, it, it, they're meant to be read as a whole story, right? They're meant to be read as a whole story. And, you know, also, and we talk about this a little bit in the class, you think about like the technological reality of the first century. We're used to f- being able to flip to a chapter. There was no flipping to a chapter. Like ro- rolling a scroll is hard, hard work. Like when Jesus is handed the scroll of Isaiah and he has to find Isaiah 61, like he was probably working for quite some time, right? So the idea is like you would be reading a place and then you would roll up the scroll and then you would be reading from that same place, but you couldn't just go, you couldn't just open up to your favorite chapter or, and they didn't even have chapters, right? It was just one big, crazy bunch of text. I'm Glad you mentioned Isaiah. There's this really interesting fascination with Isaiah in the Gospel of Luke. Um, Luke does a lot to pair Jesus, not just with that particular sermon in Luke 4 that he preaches in Nazareth, but there there's a coupling. Like Luke seems to go, let's put Jesus and Isaiah right next to each other and see what we find out. I think that is also something you draw out in your class. Can you introduce another idea related to how Jesus and Isaiah seem to be figured in Luke? Yeah. No, that's that's a great point. Um, the way I think I frame it in the course is that the message of Isaiah is the message of Jesus, right? Like the, the good news that Isaiah is looking forward to is the same good news that, that Jesus is looking forward to too, right? So, you know, there's the, the sermon that Jesus gives in his hometown, which is really interesting because... Luke appears to have taken this story out of its chronological sequence and put it as Jesus's first public action, right? So Jesus is in the wilderness, defeats the devil with Deuteronomy by relying on Deuteronomy, right? First public action is to um, use the good news that Isaiah talks about in Isaiah 61 to frame his whole message, right? And it's all about like what type of people are going to experience the coming of the kingdom of God in a positive way, it's lower status characters. And interesting, Jesus does not read, or at least we don't have recorded, the part where uh, Isaiah 61 talks about like using swords, right? So don't, can't say too much about that because, but, but the part where Jesus is like, it's definitely for the lower status people. And then like you said, there's some really interesting places where that comes up again in the text, like when John the Baptist, who is in prison, sends his own disciples to Jesus saying like, hey, are you the one that we should, are you the one that's going to bring about the kingdom of God because John is getting nervous in prison? um, Or should we be looking for someone else to throw our weight behind? And Jesus's response is to say, look at the world as it exists in my presence, right? Look at what you see and hear. And the, the reality that he points to is that he, in his presence, is fulfilling Isaiah's vision for what the kingdom of God is going to look like, right? The, the deaf hear, the blind see, the poor have the good news preached to them. And so he doesn't, and this, this could be Luke, this could be Jesus, but like the point isn't that Jesus points back at himself and say, I am the awaited figure that is bringing about the kingdom of God. He says, look at the world as it transforms in my presence, 
look at the way that look at the way that my presence changes the lived reality of the people that I encounter. And if you understand that that is the reality that the the Hebrew prophets were looking forward to, then you know who I am and what I'm doing. And if not, then you don't and you won't. I love that point. The I mean, we in a few different places in IBC courses that are offered, uh, we keep trying to hit home this. It's not these predictions about the one who's going to fulfill these autumn, like these predictions, which is how Christians have interpreted a lot of Old Testament prophets. But, but there's something about all of the context of what the prophets are looking towards. And I love framing it in terms of how the world is transformed around the presence of Jesus. Uh, and that is really powerful, especially when we put that in context with, okay, go and do likewise. Okay, go do that same kind of thing, which is the end of the Good Samaritan uh, parable. Go and be that kind of person who is making that kind of change as well. And which is, depending on what part of the world we live in today, that part has seemed to have dropped off a little bit more. Yeah, I mean, it was crazy for Luke to say these things. It was crazy for Jesus to say these things. It was crazy for people to repeat them in the second century. And it is it is just as nuts for people to try to say them today, right? Like when you just look around, you're like, there's just so much chaos. And where it seems like war could break out in a couple of different places. And, you know, people are fighting over all kinds of things. And it, I think what, for me, one of the, the things that feels like the biggest loss as the historical context of these writings and of lots of religious writings, but of the New Testament um, for our conversation is lost. You know, the good that they did, it, it, it prevents that continued good transformation from happening because they're taken out of their original context. People then get to control what they mean and they say that they're about all this other stuff. And then you see that type of transformation stop. That's just really sad because it, it, like, it doesn't have to be that way. We actually have great examples of people finding ways to overcome these divisions and, and overcome these, um, these ways that people have found to put each other down and to exclude one another. We have these great examples of people finding ways around that and through that, but that's not how we're reading these texts, but we could. So maybe things get better. Maybe we should start telling parables again, <laughs> which I was going to bring up anyway. Maybe we could just kind of end with uh, looking at the parables, uh, which I have such a great affinity for in terms of the various rabbis that I know when I've had the honor of being able to talk to them. And the way they talk about parables and the goal of parables and how they they beg for you to get in and explore. Like you don't seem to solve a parable. You just get in and explore, kind of figure out where am I? Which character do I relate to? And what what does that mean about how I see the world? And you have a couple sections, I think, on parables in your course. Is there a favorite? Luke has several parables that he puts in the mouth of Jesus. Is there Are there any that are your favorites that you could give us a little glimpse of? Yeah, I mean, there's so, there's there's so many that are really good, and some that are just bananas. But like, like when Jesus is getting dark and stormy as he's getting closer to Jerusalem, and he says some of the stuff, and in class I'd be like, oh, well, we don't really have time to talk about this today. But it's because like I have no idea what to do with some of these stories. 
Um, <clears throat> but Saved the, by the bell. <laughs> yeah. The parable of the Good Samaritan is is just so good. But but before I talk about that, like there was something that you said, the point of a parable isn't to get the right answer, right? It's to it's to be transformed by the parable. I'm I'm paraphrasing, but that's is that is that close to Yeah, no, yeah, that's good. And and I think that points to one of the healthiest parts of the Jewish tradition that has been lost in the Christian tradition. The point of Judaism isn't to get the right answer, right? And and even if you look at how the literature in each tradition evolved, like the Jews have the Talmud, which is just this like elaboration of stories, right? And of people arguing with one another, but but you almost never get like you almost never get the who is right. And sometimes when you do get the who is right, that that doesn't matter. It's it makes Western students go bonkers. <laughs> right. Right. And then you look at the Christian tradition and we like the Christ, Christian tradition develops systematic theologies like these long things that are all about what is the right answer? Why is this answer right? And why is every other answer wrong? And even if you look in the academic discipline for either tradition, like Christian scholars will murder each other, not literally, although I'm sure that's happened, but like in print, we'll just go after each other's throats. If you've ever, and if you ever can go to a meeting of Jewish scholars or scholars of Judaism, right? They like hardcore disagreements going after each other. And then everyone goes out to the bar and gets their drink of choice afterwards because they're friends, because they realize, and I think this is sort of the point of all this, like the right answer isn't the point developing relationships and reflexes and being engaged in the process of making the world just a little bit better each day is the point. The right answer doesn't do that, but a good question and an engaging story that brings you back, like, does that. So that that's my pitch there. That's my pitch there to, to yeah. I didn't get to do this in the course, but when I teach the class in person, I show there's a great, I, I love the show, The West Wing. Oh sure. The the political show and there's this there's this great episode which makes sense to the people in North America who are listening to this podcast. I'm sh- but- yeah, but I'm yeah, I'm sure it's not as it hasn't made its it hasn't been dubbed into all the languages because right. it's so in, it's so intensely about the American political system, but there's the there's this one episode. It's called Take Take the Sabbath and it's about uh, it's about someone on death row who's going to be executed, and they're trying to figure out whether or not the president is going to stay the ex- prevent the execution from happening. But there's a couple of great scenes where this one main character, Toby, is in his temple, and the 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 rabbi is preaching this sermon about how vengeance isn't Jewish. Take uh, vengeance isn't Jewish, and then he goes back and visits the rabbi, and they have, they have this great discussion, which like the show's wonderful, but it is such a I feel like it's such a perfect encapsulation of this sense that is a, is it's so much at the center of so much of the Jewish tradition, which is like the point isn't to be right. The point isn't always to make the right decisions. Like the point is to be engaged. And the point is to try to be trying to locate compassion whenever possible, because the world is not going to do that for you very often. Like it is such a hard thing to do. And in the Jewish tradition, that is what is most godlike. Right, mercy is God's defining characteristic, and mercy, even when it doesn't make any sense, is when people are reflecting the divine most clearly. And also, some of the crazier things that Jesus says when he's when they're asking about, well, what at what point does forgiveness stop? 
And Jesus is like, it doesn't. If you, if you, can, if you can prevent forgiveness from stopping, then you are being a, my disciple, right? If you can keep forgiveness going. So that was, that was a whole long thing. And I'm not going to talk about, never mind, the Jewish parable of the, um, the, ho- the, the wall of the study house. And I'm forgetting its proper name. Do you know this one? The, the, the oven of, I want to say the, the oven of Akiva. Oh, yes. Well, I, I know it because they tell it all the time at the, uh, at uh, Katsurin, which is a Talmudic village up in Galilee. But I'm trying to remember the Luke. How does that apply in Luke? It, 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 it helped. Like I use that as a point of reference to help better understand like the way Jesus tells parables, right? Because uh, the point of the story, like it's not even about being right in the story. It's about these characters, like the wall is falling and they're arguing back and forth. And like, it ends up being that like, God is like, well, actually this rabbi is right. But these other, like you, these, this group over here made such a good argument that I'm going to stay out of it. I'm going to like, and the wall stays in this like half fall position in honor of not who's right or wrong, but of the way that these these people engaged a question about how to honor God with this seemingly, does this oven work or not? But the parable of the Good Samaritan um, is one that is so good on like every level, right? Because it's it engages like the, you get to talk about the geography and this whole idea of like, well, what the roads were like and how far do they really go? And what would it mean for someone to be traveling on this road? And you get to talk about like, well, the first two characters that Jesus brings up do the, don't do the thing that you should do. The third character does the thing that you should do. And you get to talk about how that's like good Middle Eastern storytelling. Um, also Goldilocks and the Three Bears. So like those, those types of patterns stay with us. You, you get to talk about the idea of surprise between these two characters right? The, the juxtaposition between, again, like, have you been shaped to be the type of person who can do the things, who can demonstrate the type of mercy and compassion that Jesus is looking for, that the kingdom of God is looking for? And you're like, well, we have a priest and a Levite, two people who exist at the beating heart of the Jewish tradition. And it's not that what they do is wrong, but they definitely don't exhibit the type of compassion that Jesus is looking for. And then this Samaritan, this outsider, this person who like from the predominant perspective of Jews at this time would not be a legitimate member of the community. Like this person demonstrates that compassion and that that's, again, that's the point because what is like, what is the gospel after? What is Isaiah after? What is Deuteronomy after? Like it's not, it's not perfection, right? It's not, it's not perfection. It's not this type of sinless life because the law was never meant to promote a sinless life. How do we know that? Because the law has all these mechanisms to say you're sorry. It's a person who can locate compassion in themselves when they really don't have to, where they can see themselves in the, in, in, in the role or the, the situation of someone else, and, and they can take that burden upon themselves when they don't have to. And again, if there's anything that's godlike, that's, that seems like it's it. And the fact that the whole introduction is between Jesus and an expert in the Jewish law that centers around this question of eternal life and again points back to the fact that the Jewish law is a good thing in promoting that, right? It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing in promoting that. So the, the good parallel, the good Samaritan, it just works on every level. It does. It's so great. It's a really good one to end on. There's 
brilliant things about your course that we didn't have any time to even touch on, but hopefully this gives everyone like a little appetizer of the types of things you cover. Um, I'm so excited that we've added it to our collection. So thank you for your work in putting that together. And thank you for creating time to be on our podcast. So it was fun my, to have you. Thank you. It was my pleasure for both. You made it a, a, an enjoyable experience on a very cold and snowy day. You've been listening to a summary of what you can learn in the new Israel Bible Center course called The Jewish Gospel of Luke by Dr. Brian Robinson. You can learn more by signing up for his course. I'll put a link in the show notes. And you can use this course to earn credits towards Israel Bible Center certificate program in Jewish context and culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all the good music. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related.